Have you ever been slowed down or paralyzed by a recognition of your own moral failure? That agony of knowing that you messed up, that you're to blame, and that you don't know how to get out of the quagmire. You know that you should do better, make amends, try to do some sort of improvement project for yourself as well as for those that you hurt. But when one has been struck by sin and stuck in sin, change seems extremely difficult, nearly impossible. The Catholic Sacrament of Penance provides a way to get the conversion process moving, to get out of the quagmire. The Sacrament of Penance is a religious ceremony whereby God, working through his Catholic priest, perfects a prior grace of conversion in a penitent sinner and accords forgiveness to that sinner. This reconciles the serious sinner to God and the Church. Penance is not a painless effort. It involves struggle, but it is a framework, a process, that otherwise turns the quicksand and morass of self-doubt and brokenness into a more constructive process of healing and perfection. The moral life, most fundamentally, is based upon personal relationships, those with God, the angels, and all of our human neighbors. When I say the word relationships, that may conjure up all sorts of mental associations. We may have a jaded outlook toward personal relationships because we've seen enough damaged ones and experienced too much hurt in our lives. But our connections with God and all our human neighbors should be marked not by this jaded approach, but by friendship and by easy familial conversation. That is how God originally created us and how he intends things. Sin is a severing of that friendship and conversation with God and our neighbors. If a conversation between friends has stopped or turned negative, it needs to be jump-started. The sacrament of penance is such a conversational jump-start. Conversation is an especially apt description for the sacrament of penance. There are three ways that this is so. There are three meanings that this involves, and they involve varying meanings of the word conversation, meanings that you can find, for instance, in the unabridged Webster's Third Dictionary or the Oxford uh, English Dictionary. Probably not if you're using one of those small little handheld dictionaries. So there is a twist to my use of the meaning or the meanings of conversation. So first, the final goal of the sacrament of penance is to forgive serious post-baptismal sin so that we are restored to friendly and familial conversation with God and the members of the church. This conversation means a relationship, a manner of life, a friendship, a family. One hears this understanding of conversation, for instance, in the King James Bible or the Dewey Rems Bible, when we hear Philippians 3.20, quote, For our conversation is in heaven, that is, our citizenship or commonwealth or common life is ultimately in heaven. The sacrament of penance restores our conversation, our community life with God, 
with the angels, the saints. And it restores this conversation not just for heaven, but even here on earth. Second, penis, penance jumpstarts our communal conversation through a conversion. The sinner has previously already gone through at least two conversions. First, there was the sanctification of baptism. And then there was the conversion to sin, a bad conversion, following the lies of a trickster, even lies of our own making. Penance is a third conversion, hopefully the last ever. Penance rejects that past sin, embraces a holy lifestyle, one that matches the holiness of God and his church, one that matches the holiness of the Christ whose elevating power is present and active in the sacrament. This conversion process has already been taking place in the life of the penitent before the penitent ever talks with a priest. The initial stages of the process involve God's converting grace, his whispers to the sinner's soul. And the sacramental rite elevates and perfects that conversion process to a new level. While I've been using the word conversion to describe this change, I could also use the word conversation, which has conversion as one of its very old meanings. Third, the sacrament of penance converts to a holy conversation by a conversation. The religious ceremony basically involves a penitent sinner and a priest having a discussion. The penitent verbally confesses to the priest the sins for which he is sorry, asking for a satisfactory work to be done and for the gift of forgiveness. The priest verbally conforms that sorrow to Christ's redemptive sacrifice, giving the satisfactory work to be done, absolving the penitent, and restoring him to the good graces of God and the Church. Unlike most of the other sacraments, some inanimate physical object is not used in the sacrament of penance. There is no moving water, as in baptism. There is no bread and wine, as in the Eucharist. There is no holy oil. Holy oil. There is just a conversation, a verbal interchange. So the sacrament of penance is a conversation about conversation and for conversation to a higher conversation. And indeed, all of this in order to get away from a broken conversation. So if that's confused you a bit, let me translate from Old English usage. Moving away from the lie of sin, penance is a verbal interchange about conversion. It is a, an interchange for conversion to a higher communal life. Admittedly, this word plays a bit strained, strained in English because of the somewhat archaic definitions that I'm using of conversation. But if one knows the etymology of conversation, the inter interconnections are more apparent. The English conversation comes from the Latin conversatio, which ultimately goes back to the Latin verb convertere, meaning to turn around. So a sinner needs to be turned around. And when we converse about this, our minds are turning around this idea and conveying its various aspects. 
the sacrament of penance involves turning around at multiple levels. The fact that this conversation can happen in a church ceremony is due to the church's possession of the keys of the kingdom. We'll see in a few minutes the roots of this reality in a gospel passage with Christ. As such, my talk is entitled Keys to the Kingdom of Heaven, Foundations of the Sacrament of Penance. What I'd like to do over the course of this lecture is to speak about the keys of the kingdom from various perspectives. First, I'll talk about the giving of the keys by Christ as recorded in sacred scripture. Second, we'll look at the recognition of the keys and the defense of the keys in the early church. Third, we'll see their development and support in the early medieval period. And finally, finally we'll explore a few ways in which the keys can be valuable today. Along the way of my lecture, I'll try to illustrate what all this means by reference to an imaginary sinner. Since I come from a French background, I'll pick on my own nationality and find a sinner among my compatriots. And so I've nicknamed him Philippe the Fiend. He is the worst cat burglar ever to have hit Paris. We can only imagine what sinners uh, exist in other countries and at other times with other backgrounds. But for our purposes, we'll talk about Philippe the Fiend. So let's explore the giving of the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I've been using, or I start out with that framework of describing personal relationships and the sacrament of penance as a conversation. Taking a step back, we can see all of God's interaction with us as a kind of conversation. God's interaction with us, though, is not all talk, as if to say that there's not just no substance involved. God has revealed himself to us, communicated with us, because our happiness depends upon him sharing his life with us and our communicating back our knowledge and love of him. So in his biblical conversation, God is converting us back to himself by interacting with us verbally and moving us in grace. While I don't want to rehearse all of salvation history this evening, I'd like just to point out in this first kind of substantive section some of the biblical data about uh, forgiveness and repentance and how these will feed into the Catholic sacrament of penance. In the Old Testament, we see this, the Garden of Eden and its primordial sin, and we see the punishment inflicted therein, but we have to go to a later stage of the form of the New Testament as we have it in order to find the voluntary embracing of penance for sin. We can, though, find those who embrace a present sorrow for past sins, a sorrow aimed at the destruction of that sin, the, the destruction of the continuance of that sin. So, for instance, in a kind of natural law living of penance, we can see the story of the prophet Jonah, who at one point refuses to be a prophet and is swallowed up by the fish or the whale. But eventually he gets with the program and he responds to God's initiative, sending him to the wicked pagan city of Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In other words, he forgave them. Or within a covenantal system, a system wherein God has revealed himself and asked the people of Israel to bind themselves to him, we can see contrition, confession, and satisfaction, three hallmarks of penitential life. One example is from Ezra 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Israel, excuse me, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God, and have married foreign women from the from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So the background is that the people had been intermarrying with pagan um, wives and that had led to the introduction of paganism into Israel and they need to separate themselves from that pagan intermingling. They do penance, confess, and promise to do satisfaction. Lastly, from the Old Testament, I would point to how God can work forgiveness through a human being. For instance, there is the story of King David, who commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband Uriah killed. The prophet Nathan challenges and condemns David. Then, as I put on your handout in 2 Samuel, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses his sin. He shows his contrition. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan here acts as the agent of God, the agent for the bestowal of God's mercy. Furthermore, in the sacrificial system of the Israelites, a sinner can have an Israelite priest offer sacrifice for the remission of certain sins. So, for instance, with our imaginary friend, Philippe the Fiend, our dastardly thief, he could be covered by Leviticus 6. Therein, God says to Moses that a thief can be forgiven by returning all the stolen goods to the uh, owners, adding a fifth of what was stolen as a kind of reparation, and then having a priest sacrifice a ram. So there is a kind of institutional forgiveness that is possible in the Old Testament, but it's tied to that sacrificial system, and that sacrificial system becomes complicated. Furthermore, there is question whether there can be a stable structure for the general forgiveness of any and all sin committed by a human person, and whether that divine forgiveness can be accorded through another human being 
or a class of human beings. Let's move to the New Testament now. There are two issues that we'll find that come up with the data of the New Testament with respect to forgiveness. First off, whether Christ can forgive sins. Christians, as a class, accept this, but non-Christians do not. A second issue is whether Christians can forgive in the name of Christ. Christians have been split and still are split on this point. I'd like to work through some of these issues with the quotations on your handout. In the New Testament, we find Christ commanding repentance. He does not just suggest it, suggest it he commands it. The word here is metanoia, repentance. It's the central theme of the New Testament. It appears 58 times in the New Testament, which is a lot, relatively speaking. Christ commands that his listeners should convert from their sins and sinfulness. It's present from the very beginning of his public ministry. He says at the beginning of Mark, for instance, repent and believe in the gospel. The tax collector Zacchaeus provides a great example of metanoia. If you recall, he was that short, short little guy who had to climb up a tree in order to see Jesus. And Jesus calls him down, and everyone's kind of astounded. This guy, Zacchaeus, is known as being an evil tax collector. Nonetheless, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, as I put on your handout, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it four, fourfold. And this, he's acting a bit like the thief, Philippe the Fiend, following Leviticus 6, as I mentioned a minute ago. Zacchaeus is doing better than Philippe the Fiend and Leviticus 6, though. He's not just, report, not just returning a fifth over and above what he took. Zacchaeus is restoring fourfold. But Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus here forgives directly. There's no need to go to a priest and ask for a ram to be sacrificed for this thief Zacchaeus. Rather, Zacchaeus shows his contrition, he confesses, he promises satisfaction, and Christ absolves directly. Furthermore, Christ enlists Christians in the forgiveness of other persons. We see this in the gift to St. Peter of the Ministry of Reconciliation. After Peter affirms that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the New Testament origin for that phrase, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That phrase is original, but it's situated within another phrase, binding and loosing, for which we have evidence of rabbinical Jewish usage. And that Jewish usage, binding and loosing, signified in the first place to forbid, to forbid or, to for, or to permit. But they also had a secondary meaning, which is more ominous. The secondary meaning was to impose the ban or to lift the ban. 
And if you remember from the Old Testament, the ban was God's occasional command for the Israelites to kill every living thing in an especially vicious city. So it's a matter of life and death. So by the fact that Christ gives to St. Peter the ability to bind and to loose, we have here that Peter can give eternal life in heaven. What happens here on earth is accorded a heavenly ramification. The binding and loosing can go beyond these earthly limitations. Furthermore, Jesus does not limit this ministry to Peter. We see in Matthew 18 that Jesus says to the Christians more generally, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So here the keys of the kingdom are gifted to the entire church. The keys are the church's general ability to forgive sin and to give grace. That's true for all, the, all of the sacraments, indeed for all of the church's means of sanctification. But in a particular way, they will be linked to the sacrament of penance. So penance is not just a personal responsibility, but it is a communal ministry. Christ institutes a perpetual ministry, if you will, of penance. He has instituted it himself, and he asks his followers to continue it. And so he says on Easter Sunday, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Who is going to do that preaching? Us. There is a need for this ministry of penance, unfortunately, because of the reality of post-conversion sin. In an ideal world, the fundamental conversion in faith to Christ should never be followed by any sort of grave sin. But in our fallen world, such post-conversion sin still happens. Christ anticipated the problem and supplies the solution. So for our friend Philippe the Fiend, the cat burglar extraordinaire, he does not need to ask a priest to slaughter a ram so that he can be forgiven. He can go to a Christian leader, an apostle for instance, ask, asking to be forgiven with the keys of the kingdom. There are other ways that one could be forgiven. So for instance, there is prayer. James 5, as I put on your handout, says, Confess your sins to one another, that suggests something like the sacrament of penance, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. 
so we can pray for others and that can help toward their forgiveness. So Philippe the Fiend can ask his friend Jean or Francois to help him out. They can pray for him and Philippe can be forgiven. There's one other difficulty. It's what's called the unforgivable sin. I've included it on your handout from Matthew 12. It's a question of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Basically, it's a question of whether someone rejects the offer of forgiveness. On the part of the injured party, God and the church, there is no such thing as an unforgivable sin. We will not find, for instance, in the Bible, any statements that a person cannot be forgiven, with this one exception, that if a person does not want to be forgiven, well, in a sense, the conversation has been blocked. Conversation involves a relationship, but if one person doesn't want to have a relationship, then the conversation cannot happen. Otherwise, though, we would not find in the Bible any explicit statements that the church cannot forgive particular sins. For instance, that certain sins are reserved to a higher authority, to God himself, for instance. One last point about penance in the New Testament. We see from 2 Peter 3, the last quotation on your handout from the New Testament, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, the coming of Christ has been delayed in the Lord's patience precisely so that he can allow us to do penance, precisely so that we can prepare ourselves to welcome him rightly. So in the New Testament, we find how Christ has a ministry of forgiveness. He gives the keys of the kingdom to the church and the church and all Christians have a ministry of forgiveness. If we move into the history of the church, we find in the early history how the gift of those keys needs to be recognized and protected. We see this history from the very beginning. And the very first post-biblical text of the church, or of Christian history, the Didache, dated around the year 90, we hear, every Lord's day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled that your sacrifice may not be profaned. Now, when the Didache speaks about confession, it uses a Greek word called eximologesis, which is a word that is going to get used throughout the early church period, describing public penance, a formal process whereby those who have committed grave sins do acts of penance, serious penance, before the church and are eventually re-established in church life. Now the penances were serious. Things like prostration and sackcloth and ashes. 
neglect of cleanliness, like not bathing sort of thing, severe fasting, protracted sighing, weeping, beseeching the assistance of the priests on bended knee, or going before those who are slated for martyrdom and asking for their intercession. And this could take place over the process of many years, or excuse me, over the period of many years. This process was for serious sin. What exactly was covered by serious sin? For whom exactly would someone need to go and ask forgiveness in this exomodal Jesus process? Well, there's a certain range of sins. Eventually, things get crystallized according to a kind of big three category system. The big three are murder, idolatry, and adult adultery. Nonetheless, other sins at various times and in various places could also be subject to public penance. Nonetheless, even with this process of penance that is present very early in the church's history, there are tendencies that work against it. The first is what's called Montanism, which was a rigorous movement that wanted a purer church, one less willing to grant forgiveness for post-baptismal sin. The danger being, they saw, the possibility that others would tacitly accept sin as a reality in their lives. One of the major authors here, major figures, is Tertullian. He went through an orthodox phase at the beginning, but then eventually turned to Montanism, this rigorous uh, movement, and he had a phrase that describes their approach to the sacrament of penance. Tertullian said, the church can forgive sins, but I will not do so, lest others also commit sin. It's the idea of, I don't want to forgive you, else you're going to think that sin is okay. It's a tough rhetoric and a tough way of life. The church had to fight against this um, strictness. One of the major figures here is St. Cyprian of Carthage, especially when this rigorous phase of Montanism breaks out uh, in a particularly uh, virulent form after the Decian persecution, whereby Christians were persecuted by the empire in northern Africa. And when someone uh, gave himself over to uh, the empire's wishes, and sacrificed to the pagan gods or to the emperor, they were called lapsi. They had sacrificed, they had lapsed uh, from their Christian life. And so the question became, well, what do we do with these lapsi if they wish to come back to the church, if they wish to be forgiven? There were those who went beyond Montanism, following the anti-pope novation, and said, these persons cannot be forgiven at all. It's not just something like Tertullian where I don't want to forgive them. Novation said they can't be forgiven at all. Perhaps God could forgive them, but the church cannot forgive such serious sin. St. Cyprian of Carthage, fighting against the Novations, says no. 
The church has the ability to forgive any sin that God can forgive. And so there becomes what's called an anti-novation principle, whereby the church affirms the sacrament of penance and affirms that the church can forgive anything. There is no sin too great for forgiveness. So we see a certain challenge here to the keys. In response, the church affirms the keys. At the same time, though, the living of those keys was very strict. That exomologesis process, if you will, hardened over the course of the early centuries. And by the time of the 5th century, and certainly the 6th century, if you will, it ossifies a bit. Penance came to a kind of dead end. People hesitated to use it because it was so serious. It was so rigid in obliging persons to a very high lifestyle when they, ordered, when they entered into what's called the order of penitence that people frankly just put it off until the very end of their lives. And then everyone figured, well, I'm dying. I might as well enter into the order of penitence which really didn't mean so much because physically they couldn't do so much. If you're dying in your deathbed, you can't be going and lying in sackcloth and ashes at the feet of the church, the doorstep of the church, or before the feet of the priests or other Christians asking for their intercession. So precisely when people needed the sacrament over the course of their lives, they were not making themselves available to it. There was a kind of hardening of the living of the keys. This brings us now to medieval contributions. If you will, medieval Christianity burnishes those keys, wipes away the rust that is kind of accrued to them. And then medieval Christianity copies them into different forms. Part of what's going on here is the Christianization of the Mediterranean culture. For instance, with respect to things like love and marriage and family, the pagan notions have to be swept away, and instead Christian notions have to take root. Part of this, as I put on your handout, for instance, a recent book on this, From Shame to, to Sin by, Carl, by Kyle Harper, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity, part of what's going on is recognizing how Christian life applies in all of the areas of human life. What this can lead to, in the words of Peter Brown, a famous historian, as I put on your handout in the scholarly section, there be, can be a kind of pecketization of the world, from the Latin word for sin. It can be a sense of sin in the world, the sense that sin can, root, can reach down even into the roots of one's life, even into the nitty-bitty cracks. I would propose something a bit different. It's not so much that sin is getting seen everywhere, so much as people are able to see how Christian morality is able to fit everywhere. And yes, that recognizes where there's sin, but it also recognizes how virtue can be lived, even in the smallest areas of life. And so as people realize how they can depart from Christ in their way of life, 
they also recognize how they can turn to Christ, even in the virtue of penance. So, if Peter Brown said that there can be a pecatization of the Christian worldview, there can be what I would call a penitentification of the world, from the Latin word for penance, penitentia. There is the growth of opportunities to live penance. This penitential creativity manifests itself in the early Middle Ages in a couple of ways. First, with respect to the living of the sacrament of penance. As I mentioned, by the 5th century and certainly the 6th century, the living of the formal process of public penance was so difficult that most people were pushing it off. But an alternative process developed in 6th century Celtic and Anglo-Saxon lands. And naturally enough, it's called Celtic and Anglo-Saxon penance. And the process worked like this. A person who was penitent for their sins, big or small, would go to a priest who would then look in a book of sins and find the corresponding penance to be given, give that penance to the sinner, say, okay, go and do this, Come on back afterward, and I'll forgive you of your sins and reconcile you to the church. Now here's a couple of, a couple of examples. And this is from the 6th century, from the penitential of Finian. If anyone, has start, quote, if anyone has started a quarrel and plotted in his heart to strike or kill his neighbor, if he is a cleric, he shall do penance for half a year with an allowance of bread and water and for a whole year abstain from wine and meats, and thus he will be reconciled, reconciled to the altar. But if he is a layman, he shall do penance for a week, since he is a man of this world, <laughs> and his guilt is lighter in this world. If any cleric commits murder and kills his neighbor, and he is dead, I don't know why he adds in if he is dead, because presumably if he commits murder, the guy is dead. But that's what he says. If any cleric commits murder and kills his neighbor and he is dead, he must become an exile for ten years and do penance seven years in another region. Then he shall be received into his own country. Now that sounds very serious, and it was. But this was easier than the penitential process that was taking place uh, around the Mediterranean basin. So, for instance, if our Philippe the Fiend were to uh, commit a couple robberies and then get penitential about it, he would go to his priest, Father Francois, say, Father, I've done these sins. I'm sorry. The priest would say, okay, go on a penance, uh, excuse me, go on a pilgrimage to your local shrine. After that, you're okay. Come on back. I'll give you absolution. Then you can go to communion again. That was a major innovation that helped the life of penance to take greater root in the lives of Christians. The second innovation is the use of the sacrament for smaller sins, not as, for instance, for those big three, adultery, murder, and idolatry, but even for smaller sins. Thirdly, penitential creativity involved the crowdsourcing of penance, if I could be so glib. Basically, this involved individual and communal charity in helping others with penance and in being helped by others. This could be called proxy penance. 
So as I mentioned earlier with Philippe Le Fiend, if he had a lot of penance to do, if he had to work, let's say, and do 10 years of prayers, he could go to his friends, Jean and Francois, and say, help me out here. If you do a year, Jean, and if you do a year, Francois, that cuts out two years for me. So will you help me out with this process? Better yet, I'm going to go to a hundred of my friends, and maybe I'll throw a party for them. Or maybe I'll give them a little stipend, a little money to help. If they do some prayers for me, that'll help me out, and I can whittle away the number of years of prayers that I have to do. The understanding here was that the communal body of Christ, that is the church, allows other Christians to help sinners. We do this in charity. We can cooperate in doing good. We can cooperate in helping others do penance. This is something we even do now. The medievals just systematized it. Lastly, for the medievals, there was an important shift in the timing in terms of when absolution was given relative to the doing of satisfactory penance. Earlier, absolution was only given after a person did their satisfactory work. So Philippe the Fiend has to go off and do 10 years of prayers, or he has to go do a pilgrimage uh, to Lourdes at some place. Well, Lourdes didn't exist then, so he has to go off to Rome or something. Well, starting in the 800s and being completed around the year 1000, things shift so that initially, right after Philippe the Fiend confesses his sins, the priest will give absolution with the bargain that Philippe has to do his penance afterward, his satisfactory work afterward. That's how we find things now. So a person who is contrite for their sins goes to a priest, confesses their sins, asks for forgiveness, receives the penance to do, and is then absolved of their sins, those sins being forgiven by God and the church. Lastly, we should mention particular contributions of St. Thomas Aquinas, because they are significant and because this talk also is being sponsored by the Thomistic Institute. Before Aquinas, there are a number of different theories about what was actually happening in the sacrament and what was the forgiving part. What was it that was especially important? What made the sacrament forgiving? Some people said that it was the penance uh, imposed by the priest. Some people said, no, it's the contrition of the sinner. Some people said, no, it's the absolution given by the priest. St. Thomas brought all of that together. And he said that in a single rite, in a joint action, the priest and the penitent work together in the forgiveness of sin. So it's not just something that the penitent does. It's not just something that the priest does. But there is, if you will allow me to say, there is a con-celebration going on. Usually when we talk about con-celebration, we think of multiple priests celebrating the Eucharist together. Well, if you will, we could say that there's a con-celebration going on between priest and penitent in the sacrament of penance. Each part is necessary, the priest part and the penitent's part. If you don't have one, the other doesn't work. They have to go together. Secondly, Thomas talks about a relationship between a virtue of penance and the sacrament of penance. In other words, he shows how contrition 
can be active in the sinner's life, in the penitent's life, in a deep way, one that transcends not just one that transcends a particular sacrament, but that can incorporate the entire life of the sinner. This, if you will, is the medieval aspect of seeing sin, but also penance as being universal. Excuse me, not universal, but a um, better way to say it would be uh, it can take place in big and small ways. That's a better way to say it. Not universal, not that we see sin everywhere uh, and penance everywhere, but that we can see how sin can be present in a lot of places, but also how virtue, the virtue of penance, can be present in a lot of places. Sin has not disappeared from our world. But the world is better with Christianity because we know now how to deal with sin. We have the keys. The sacrament of penance provides a known structure, something concrete to do. It's also a relatively easy structure. Most everyone can communicate. Talking to a priest may seem intimidating, but it's not as physically difficult as doing the slalom and downhill skiing, or doing a double axle and figure skating, if you, if you watch the Olympics recently. Talking to a priest means just talking to another human being, and all of us can do that. There's a certain amount of, if you will, self-help and counseling therapy that take place in the sacrament of penance. The person is able to recognize those, need, those areas of growth in their life. They can receive help and counseling from a priest. And it's done in relatively small dosages, ways that are suitable for most people. But the sacrament is not just for advice. It's for concrete change, the divine change of God impacting us with his loving grace. But God does not save us without us. Remember that uh, notion from St. Thomas, that the sacrament of penance is a con-celebration. Indeed, we have to sweat. We have to sweat off the sin from our brow in the sacrament. The sacrament of baptism involves forgiveness in an easy process. The priest wipes away our sins with the easy words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Water is poured over our heads, everything's good. But if we sin seriously after that, we need to put a bit of elbow grease into our forgiveness. We do this through the virtue of penance. If we don't, if we don't pay attention to the virtue of penance, the sacrament can become mechanical or rote. With the virtue, the person's subjective intensity or attentiveness or devotion is key. It's always the case that a penitent receives grace when he celebrates the sacrament of penance. That is the promise of Christ, who is always faithful to his promises. At the same time, each one of us can be more or less receptive, more or less intense in our sacramental practice. And that means that we can be brought to a correspondingly higher or lower height of holiness. And of course, we should shoot for the higher level of holiness to be a great saint. If we're trying to get into heaven, to sneak into heaven by the hair of our chinny-chin-chin, chin, we've missed the point. Something is wrong. 
That perspective lacks the intense desire for God and the total gift to God that's the very essence of life in heaven. So we can follow what the medievals did. We can recognize where there is sin, but we can recognize even more the number of possibilities we can have to do penance. Now is the time of Lent. Perhaps some of you are doing a Lenten penance. You've given up chocolate for uh, 40 days, for instance. That little act of penance can help prepare you to offer your sins for forgiveness in the sacrament of penance. Or you could do a daily examination of conscience or do a daily act of contrition. Those two prepare you to devoutly celebrate the sacrament of penance with your favorite priest, Father Albert or Father Francois, for Father Philippe, for, uh, Philippe the Fiend. You even could do penance for sinners. You could pray for their conversion. You could do penance for your enemies even. You could do, if you will, the reverse of that crowdsourcing that the medievals would do. You could actively take upon yourself the penitential prayers that someone else should be doing, but perhaps is not doing. We saw how the medievals uh, confessed even what are called venial sins, light sins. In this, there is a practice of more frequent confession. It's not necessary to confess venial sins, but the confession of venial sins is one area where the sacrament shows its power. For there is a need for grace for growing even in the small things, and sometimes it's in the small things where we need the most grace in order to improve in our lives. Frequent confession and the frequent devout reception of Holy Communion are the normal sacraments of habitual Catholic practice. And if we're able to develop that practice of frequent confession, and if we do so devotedly, we will see in hindsight, slowly, how God is able to work on us for our sanctification, for our perfection. The keys of penance, the keys of absolution, are keys to the kingdom of heaven. They open the door of the pearly gates. They are keys to the heart of God. They are keys to the healing of our hearts. They are keys to the healing of our world. I pray that they may be keys for each one of us here, this Lent and throughout our lives, sooner rather than later, not leaving to the end of our lives like in the 4th and 5th centuries, entering into the order of penance, but embracing this, not as something direful, but something joyful, something to be embraced with gratitude, the gratitude that Christ loves us enough to save us and to give us the opportunity to cooperate, to use his keys, and to join him again in heaven. <laughs>